0: Hello and welcome to Decorating Pages. I'm your host Kim Wanup. Well, it's uh it's July and I'm still not back to work. I'm wondering if any of you are who are in the industry, I feel like uh, a lot of us started to get our engines running a little bit and now with this past day of setbacks. Um I don't know. I don't I really haven't heard anything if uh, film production is essential office work. So, I don't know if uh, I'm going back to work anytime soon. I think we're all a little confused. and uh, maybe it's per production basis. I don't know. Um, uh, I seem to be reading that, um, it's okay if you're filming outside, but <laughs> that just seems like a logistical nightmare also, bringing a whole film crew outside these days. So, I don't know. Um... I think I feel the way a lot of people feel is that I can't wait to get back to work. But it's going to be really hard and I almost just want to sit it out till it's all done. But I love my job and there's just that fire inside that makes you want to create and get back to it. So hopefully we will. Hopefully, um... we can all wear a mask and get back to work and wash our hands and it'll be fine. So I hope so. Uh, and this past couple weeks, I've just been diving into documentaries and films about our industry. Um, so, what's one up watching? Uh, I did a lot of <laughs> documentaries in the last week, and my husband and I also restarted watching The Crown on Netflix. I love The Crown. I just think it's magnificent. I just think every aspect of it is just a 10. I think it's a 10. Can't really find a flaw. I mean, maybe I can, but I, uh, that, it's the acting, but I I think sets and all that jazz is just, oh, I love it. I don't know. I love the whole story of it. Oh, oh, I just love it. So we're like halfway through season one. I love it what can i say so i watched this documentary called the fabulous alan carr which is uh, i think i watched it on amazon um i didn't know who alan carr was but i sure should have seen his movies and was pretty much obsessed with grease 2 when i was young so uh he produced grease grease 2 like uh, Halle Fall and produced the nineteen ninety eight Oscars and just a super duper. He was like a uh, an agent and then a producer and just positive guy and just made you believe things and made you think everything was going to be fabulous and like loved old Hollywood and old glamour and and the the the, the storyline. Of just how he produced the 1989 Oscars alone is fascinating. (laughs) It's like, I guess, uh, I guess one of the worst produced shows the Oscars ever had. Um, I, when they showed footage of it, I actually remembered watching it um, because I've never, I never missed an Oscars when I was younger. So, Really just, um, it's a good story and it, you know, it talks about Hollywood and producing and getting, getting movies made in a weird way. Um, I watched Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, which is a documentary that came out last year, 2019, about sound in films. And it just goes into great detail of the emotion that sound brings to films and television. And I I think for me, one of the most interesting parts was this, they had this diagram called the circle of talent, which is broken up. It looks like a rainbow and it's broken up into three sections, which is um, voice, sound effects, and music. And so in the voice section, you have production recording, dialogue, editing, and ADR. And then in the sound effects department, you have Special effects, foley and ambience and then and then there was just music, so it's crazy to realize how many levels of sound and all these layers that are in just a couple seconds of film um really wonderfully made uh, documentary so if you're in if you're into sound or if you're not into sound, it makes you get into sound um yeah, Making Waves. I believe that that's on Amazon and Netflix. I watched By Sidley LeMond, um, the great director. Um, oh, obviously, <laughs> he did The Wiz, <laughs> uh, The Verdict, 12 Angler Men, uh, Serpico, Network, Dog Day Afternoon. He did Death Trap, which is one of my guilty pleasures. If you haven't seen Death Trap with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve and Diane Cannon... It's really bad, but it's really good. <laughs> um, it's just wonderful to hear him speak about his films and his color palettes and how he used them. Or like he, he blatantly didn't use color palettes. And then talk about the lighting. Just really interesting filmmaking um, documentary. And that I watched on Amazon, I believe. Also on Amazon I watched There Are No Fakes, which is about fake art being passed around for years by the artist Norval Marcel. Uh, he's an indigenous artist, really bold, beautiful color, and it's it's like flowers and animals and um, his heritage and his messages in his art, just beautiful pieces. And I guess they were easily uh, duplicated. I don't know. The documentary follows people who have purchased the art and art dealers who sold it. Uh, And then it takes a kind of a weird turn about one of the dudes abusing kids and teens, which I didn't see coming at all, but um, it really should have been its own documentary. But that was good. And that was on Amazon um, also. And then I just last night watched Mucho Mucho (laughs) Mucho. Mucho Mucho Amor, which, on Netflix, uh, is so cute. And I'm sorry, I missed the boat on knowing who Walter Mercado was. So I, I know that I'd seen him in my life, probably on Howard Stern or something, but I had no clue that he was this Puerto Rican icon, and it was simply fascinating. And the best part about this documentary is seeing this dude's house and how he lives, because... He's a hoarder of vitamins. And I'm totally stealing that for a character at some point because it was pretty fascinating to see how he lived. I mean, it's how we all live. You got, you know, some people, you know, we got a lot of shit. Some people have a lot of shit. So, but yeah. So that was really good. That just came out, I believe. I also watched The Lion King, the um, Al Hirschfield story, the character artist. <sighs> I wish. I wish I could draw like that. What a skill to just draw like he did and it was for the New Yorker and the New York Times and uh fantastic story, really lovely. That was on Amazon also. So yeah, that was my week in documentaries and The Crown. Not bad. On this episode I speak with Jonathan Fisher, who is an editor in unscripted reality television. He's been working on shows like Expedition Unknown, Little Women Dallas, BattleBots, American Guns, Ultimate Fighter, The Biggest Loser, and a ton more. So he explains to me how the editing process begins, works, and ends in a project. He explains how the tsunami in Japan in 2011 changed the editing industry forever. Who knew? We discuss the ethical responsibility of an editor, uh, especially in reality television. How under current conditions, working remotely is doable but not ideal. Um, and he had a big career change lately into virtual reality and how that relates to editing. He is a dear friend of mine. And I'm a little nervous because I, editing an editor is weird. Um, I don't really edit much out of these interviews, you could probably tell. <laughs> so, uh, the uh, Maybe the occasional twin screaming... Or the gardener, or my neighbor's uh, hot rod revving up in the uh, in the background. But I try to get that out. I know it's annoying. I'm sorry, um, but it's always been my intention just to have informative conversation and just to let you listen in. So I hope you enjoy. Talented friends I would have to say <laughs> but the thing is is that I never you don't really know people's backgrounds like I don't I don't know why you came out here <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> that's true actually I, I really yeah. don't know that but I've been friends with you for so long and, and exactly and this backstory is something I don't know of a lot of people so I that's one of the most interesting things of this like even with Ethan it was like I kind of new but not really like i know he went to school and then he came out here but that dude just fell into it kind of like and luckily he got like big projects and everything but so ha so how did did you want to be an editor let me ask that
1: i suppose okay um how do how can i even describe this i <laughs> uh, i think that many people who work uh within a creative in- industry they they have uh you know something that i think that uh pat and oswald once once you know, it was calling kind of an ironic moment of mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically of just uh, you know being exposed early on to some sort of like the, this amazing creative prowess, and then just yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of squandering it or just kind of like shrugging it off. So, right. how did I get into editing? How did I actually start this? Uh, it, that would be high school. I would oh, say wow. um, that would be the, the most direct way that I would I would kind of have place the beginning of my career path. And uh, that started actually with um, a wonderful art teacher who's named uh, Vicki Casper. Her name is Vicky Eichler. Now she got married and, uh, and has a wonderful son. And it's, we've, we've stayed very, very close throughout the years. And uh, as an art teacher, of course, uh, she was always trying to get her students to Push their boundaries, whether it was a medium of painting, or if it was a medium of uh, any kind of mixed media, or if it was a medium of this new thing that we we didn't really understand yet, which was uh, us kind of coming to an under of a of this uh, this new crossroads of of television and digital media, and for the first time having, uh, albeit in a very crude way, having this accessible to the regular civilians like uh where we would not and by that i mean i I mean of course you know to to regular people normally uh working with until quite recently working with uh any kind of video equipment was extremely expensive, of course, right. and, uh, you know, thanks in large part to globalization and of course to, you know, trade with China and, uh, and of course, uh, you know, things like JVC and Sony taking these leaps and downs and creating, and Panasonic creating these things called, you know, the camcorder and uh, creating uh, mm-hmm. th- these cultures where uh, instead of using just regular photography or using, you know, that very expensive 16 mil or eight mil to capture our moments, then, for the first time and the average middle-class family in the 80s could afford a camcorder. And oh, that's yeah, what changed them.
0: everything. Yeah, they were so heavy. Filming. We had them. They were so heavy.
1: They were heavy, yeah. And they were, And some of them had, like, cool bells and whistles, and some of them were more compact than others. But, you know, you really have to hand it to... Uh, Sony and JVC for creating these things because it really was a thankless job of having to miniaturize this more and more every year, and, uh, and ha- having formats just come and go. Let
0: me, uh, but, let me ask you something. So did, that's did oh, you sorry. have a did you have a PXL two thousand?
1: No, what did we have? Uh, I'll, I'll have to look. I'll have to look it up and oh, put no. it, uh, give it to you in the show notes because it was a Sony, and uh, the the actual model number escapes me. But it, uh, as my father uh, always said, that, you know he always wanted to get the ones with the bells and bells and whistles so it had a lot of really neat features the, like, it, like it could automatically fade
0: i think we had but, uh, we went through like three or four like in my lifetime of the really heavy one and then it got slimmer and then you went to that little compact one but the pxl 2000 was like a toy kind uh, of it was it was marketed for like young filmmakers like you know using your action figures to make Little movies, so I don't actually know who made that, but I had one. But the tapes that you use they were like almost cassette tapes, and the tapes that you used to record things were so expensive and, and yes. now that your parents had already dished out all this money for this little camcorder. Yes. So I only ever had one tape. <laughs>
1: so. You know, so, in this is the 90s, I'm 40, just turned 42 years old, so this is the 90s, and uh, we were in high school, and um. Vicky Eichler decided to uh create sort of a news channel for the school. And uh, you know we we were thinking every so often that we would run around this is a Catholic school and we would run around in, in uniform
2: yeah. and
1: uh, we would just have different reporters making different stories and usually they were actually pretty much puff pieces and I think that, you know once in a while there was a student passed away unfortunately we made a memorial for her but uh in large part it was just it was very light we never we we didn't exactly have like some sort of investigative journalism journalism or anything like that in the school we wouldn't we wouldn't go like we we weren't like like, like, trying to crack the the story but why do the uh, boys get new
0: helmets and the girls don't like (laughs) why
1: exactly we well we had to figure out how to edit these stories together and uh this is using um, relatively primitive technology because we didn't really have, at least at that school, we didn't have any way to actually edit um, our uh, our movies together. So we were doing things, something that we call in-camera editing, which, uh, as the name would suggest, it means that it's like it's like I am doing a shot here until this someone says these words, cut. I am going to cut right. to the next shot. Yeah, you, know, you basically are assembling this thing as you go. It's very tedious and it's never really you know going to uh, be as smooth as. as being able to actually edit something that's something we call frame accurate editing. But uh, the the next crude method, uh, let's say the next iteration of this uh, is something that we would call tape to tape editing, which um, mm. sometimes you would use like a kind of a control box that would control one deck and you, you would play back on one and control the other. And again, you know, very rudimentary effects, some little things you could do. The box worked only half the time and uh, it, you know, we would assemble our, uh, our uh, news stories that way. And this was, painstaking it was not something that was very fun at all and uh i do remember um that Missus is kept us uh at one point uh probably a little later than she should have for us to uh just to kind of get this thing done in, in time for, for broadcast. And, you know, little did I know that that would actually become kind of a, uh, the norm sometimes <laughs> in my career. <laughs> Again, like a knife. little bit of an ironic moment. Uh, so, and I was also making plenty of movies with my friends with the aforementioned camcorders. Uh, and there were some friends in the neighborhood. We, and we made countless little films, uh, that, that were just a lot of fun. And we learned, we kind of learned filmmaking in this very sort of, um, it's like almost this Montessori sort of education of filmmaking where it's just, we were learning with our little peers of teenagers and we were learning by doing and uh, making all these mistakes as we go. But still I didn't have any, any kind of a formal education, but we, we were actually getting quite good at making dumb little movies. At least I thought we were pretty good at it. Uh, but, but that's then, probably the best um, way to
0: do it because you're so young. Who cares if you make a mistake? Like there's no,
1: yeah.
0: that's the, probably that's the, the best thing about it. it. Yeah.
1: That's the time to do it. Yeah. 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 And then, so then, uh, you know, in the nineties, then I, I, uh, I attended college. I went to, I attended college. I went to the Rochester Institute of Technology, um, and uh, which I, I was strategic about because my parents are from there, so I knew that I had countless aunts, uncles, and cousins that I could, uh, I could go and, and do, do laundry and get free meals a <laughs> year, and, uh, and then Very just go important. back to my dorm. Yeah, it was nice. But I got to learn um, about professional broadcast quality editing and of course cameras as well and everything else you learn in film school um, during those four years. So it was in 1998 was the beginning of my sophomore year. You know, we were learning on these big clunky systems, but uh, uh, little did I know that I was actually learning until I really kind of uh, realized it one day. I mean, you know, I was an adult, but it I was just kind of naive. I didn't understand that, uh, you know, my tuition was actually paying me to, uh, to get at least kind of an elementary understanding of, of how to work with a software and hardware package mm-hmm. that uh, was at the time worth probably $70,000. Per system, uh, you know, uh, yeah. avid technology out in Massachusetts at the time, they could charge whatever the LA wanted. Actually, right. Uh, so that, that was kind of uh, one of my paths to editing, and I'll, I will say that that I know I say, say it a lot now, but that really was an ironic moment because I hated editing on avid media composer
2: so much, <laughs> uh,
1: but not for the reasons that you would think. It was actually not to be critical of the school, but it's just because of the logistics of all of this and the limits, the limitations of the technology at the time. Um, we, we didn't have big centralized servers. Storage was extremely, um, you know, it was not existent. You know, we didn't have centralized storage or a big server or something that, that you would, that anyone would take for granted. And gods, there's so much stuff in the cloud and things like that. no we would have little zip drives. And a lot of times we would have to still digitize at least part of our movie uh, every time we did it, and we only had like I think, I believe it was only a six-hour block that you could take out uh, uh, for your, you know, for you to edit. So if you can picture how frustrating that is, yes, well, yeah, you are actually you are digitizing footage every time, you know, much of the time. We didn't have huge hard drives that there. there was no big hard. There was we had zip drives that you can keep your project on, and that was about it. You know, so it was a very frustrating thing to have to digitize footage sometimes we would keep it in a secret folder and like <laughs> it just like, kind of hide it somewhere uh but you know, generally we were supposed to blow our footage away and or we were supposed to just have an understanding that it was volatile sure it might be on there today but uh, you know uh, but you know the facilities um managers could at any time digitize whatever sorry delete whatever they wanted Yeah. Right. so yeah so that was you know so it was it was frustrating a lot of us started to, uh, to download um uh, uh, you know versions of uh, adobe premiere which is of course uh, you know most people uh familiar with the adobe suite know that that's it's still a lot around and kicking and uh you know a lot of us would um kind of we were college students and i really deeply regret this but we would find illegal means to uh download this um this software and um
0: but, oh you know, well, rocking. now yeah. it's now it's recorded that you did illegal shit. I, know. So. I, I did illegal shit.
1: <laughs> Look at me, yeah. <laughs> In college, what 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 are MP3s? What's Napster?
0: Uh, <laughs> I yeah. I don't. Yeah. I can't even talk about how much illegal music I downloaded. But.
1: I know. Was, yeah. I remember the beginning of my freshman year, people were like, we're downloading these mp3s. I was like, mp What's? And then like an hour later, I had more music than I had ever had right.
0: in my entire life. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I, I, I was say, 18 years old. I probably in college, I wasn't that savvy. And in college, I was still like, literally recording Howard Stern on a tape every day and then listening to it at night when I would draft. So I was pretty backwards <laughs> at that point and had CDs, but MP3s I didn't start downloading till way into, like, probably 2002. <laughs> I was late to that party. I was still buying CDs. That's
1: all right. It's not too late. I think it still counts. It's in the the early tender years of, of music piracy. You could still get a fine. Um,
0: I probably could still get a fine. Yeah, probably. But, uh, so then... But, yeah,
1: so, you then know, college, so college came and went and I graduated in 2001 and just like all of my friends, we, uh, we all one by one, uh, moved out. It was kind of, I equated it to, uh... I equate it to, uh, you know, the, the kind of the great expansion of the West, kind of like in far and away. Where, like,
0: they're all, those people <laughs> they're all just kind of staking their, their land. Their, <laughs> Is that the staking word? our land in yeah. Los
1: Angeles, and we're all like 20 <laughs> years old. We don't know what we're doing at all. But like, uh, you know, and a lot of us are starting to kind of get jobs and figure this out. So within a couple of months, well, okay, so I did not want to be an editor at all when I moved out
2: here. Oh. You
1: know, yeah. not not one bit you know i again i was like i hate this i hate this i hate this um but then so i was like uh you know I, I want to direct but you know so does anyone so you know get in line kid so i i did not know uh what i wanted to do and i'll admit that now it was uh, it was just a little bit strange but i i think that it, it's doubtful that uh that anyone goes out no. um with certainty knowing what what one's career is it, it sounds like it's a little bit of an exception for you but you never know you, you maybe you would have hated uh, decorating you would have
0: oh uh, yeah props. no hated I, I think one of the best things about working your way up in this industry is actually seeing what other positions do like I wanted to be a production designer and I sort of set that path and then got to a point where oh this could, I could I'm on the path and now I don't want to do it anymore and had to kind mm-hmm. of start over so and that was only because working in an art department, I got to see what positions were really doing, and not just the titles. Like you know, in art, and even in editing, you have so you have titles of people you don't really know. You have sound mixing, you have editing mixing. Like it's you have so yeah. many things going on that you really so gotta work friends, in it to so, see.
1: Yeah, so many of my friends were. Bouncing around different different parts of the industry in a way that, if you had told forty two year old me that uh, all these people would have had all these different careers, I would have thought that was insane. But like n- now right. looking back on it, right. it was it was, I, even I was a Grip and Electric, and I was you know, probably you know like I was scrawny. It was probably about. Um, you know, twenty pounds thinner and not like in a good way. Like I had no right. muscle. In so right. I had no. I had no business heading up at, like a twelve k. Like uh, like there were a couple of times where like I uh, you know I, and I worked on a tiny movie uh, that Peter Stormer was like the executive producer of. Mm-hmm. uh when i first moved out here with a couple of friends and after a week i got fired and it was just because I was too skinny like they're like we, we're sorry <laughs> you're gonna it's it's for your own good son yeah you're, you're gonna hurt yourself
0: oh my like, god
1: yeah you're, it's uh so uh it, it was it was cool like and jeremy's sister was just randomly in it he's a sweetheart uh but uh you know, so it was a little oh, like i always think
0: jeremy's sister's like kiss a death like whatever he's in is like you got about five episodes before they pull the plug. <laughs> I know,
1: and, and well, and this was an, an indie film, so it's just,
0: oh, just finished well, the thing in probably
1: twenty days, and that was it. Right. So I worked on that for a couple of weeks, and then I was like, I was a little down, you know, because I kind of thought I wanted to get into sound editing, and uh, I'll say that in a strange way, I did, um, uh, because my, my career um, is um, comprehensive. I think would be the. the yeah. The, how, do, how, do, how you would put it. My career is a very comprehensive one now, currently. But, uh, yeah, some of my friends, <laughs> I remember, uh, like my friend Matt Taylor, who still is, uh, you know, bless him, he's, he's probably one of the most gifted re-recording mixers um, that I've ever, I've ever met. And he, uh, you know, uh, he got uh, his Emmy last year, uh, which is awesome.
0: Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely amazing. Uh, so, you know all these people working on these different shows and uh, no i'm sorry he was an oscar oh, my god no you got an oscar uh, yeah so yeah uh i
0: gotta look that up I well whatever i mean you know it's oscar yeah. Emmy. it's the same thing yeah, exactly. it's, it's the same, same thing,
1: thing. No, <laughs> uh so you know i started to see all my friends uh trying out A zillion different things Uh, Which again If you looked at it now In my 40s It would have It would have seemed Almost like diminishing returns I would see My friends who were Kind of Getting into the sound guys Be like I think I'm going to go Join Local 600, Whoa. which of course is cinema, Cinematographers Union. I want to become a cameraman, but do sound, but do this. And so it, it was just kind of the shotgun approach to our careers, and uh, we would all just kind of sit around, uh, you know, late at night at Barney's Beanery, and, and just kind of you
2: know, <laughs> play, you know
1: play play woe well as me, and trying to you know figure out navigating the this terra incognita of our careers. I miss
2: um, and
1: after a couple of months of me just bouncing around being Grip and Electric, I worked on a couple of USC films actually as well, uh, like some uh, some Starkey ones, so big budget films, and you know, people uh people who were like in grad school and uh and of course uh they're you know, some of them have had amazing careers actually since then like jaffer mahmoud actually i worked on his thing and he actually is a huge tv director now kevin burke uh was a sound guy and was really a ma- very gifted uh re-recording mixer and, and uh in and music uh supervisor and all this other stuff and he ended up uh now he's actually now he runs like a, like he's a showrunner but something like five or six different animated series right now and he still does it with his friend Chris Doc Wyatt and, and you know it's like all these friends who all hung out and made movies in college and now they're just doing this for, for a profession which you know that's amazing all all we want to do is just make movies with our friends and so you know the, these these young men and women have uh, you know myself included have been you know have been blessed with the tools to persevere and we've had we have careers because of it so uh, that's amazing. But then um, I finally found kind of, a, I walked into a job almost literally uh, in post-production just because of a confluence of circumstances where my mother's uh, college roommate, her brother, uh, was out here. He was a... a you know a tv and movie trailer editor uh who was making the transition again career transitions making the transition in his 50s uh into being a, uh, a voiceover artist and his name mm. is phil terrence and he still works he's probably uh one of the you know he's he's one of the greats at this point Ooh, uh, wow. You know, a, a lot of these oh, a lot bad. of these very talented announcers unfortunately have passed on uh, like uh, you know so like there's, uh, you know, like, like Don LaFontaine in In a World. And right, a lot right. of these guys are kind of, uh, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s and 80s, and they're retiring and or passing away. Uh, so Phil Terrence is colliding the ranks in a, kind of a grim sort of way. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, so we kept on trying to get lunch together, um, and he was trying to find me a job in post-production. He didn't know what to really do. And then uh, he, uh, he finally, uh, you know, had to cancel lunch again. But he said, you know, um, I will tell you, that uh, I was just at a place and I'm pretty sure it's like around the corner from where, where where'd you say you lived? And at the time I lived in trashy ass Burbank. And uh, I was just, I told him kind of where I lived and he goes, Oh my God, they're around the corner from you and they're losing their assistant uh, to, uh, he's becoming an editor, uh, you know, why don't you call this number? And it was a place that, uh, at the time it was called cellulite heroes. And the, the, uh, the CEO was a guy named Jordan Levine. And, uh, he runs a place, uh, in Hollywood now that's, uh, it's called stampede studios. And he told me it would be great for you to come in. You know, it sounds like, you know, you're brand new to this town and, you know, let's just see what you can do. So they gave me, uh, they, they gave me a job um, it was a union shop, so they gave me kind of this sort of uh, off, non-union, off-the-books assistant editor job, and it, it was kind of, of a little bit is. of a word salad with uh, that that Beatsy would probably not love. But uh, you know, instead of me being an assistant editor, which is of course a union position, but they do this with a lot of, uh, of guys starting out. They called me a finisher, which means that I was sort of this strange last line of defense, uh, and I would have to basically take. Every ounce of coffee that that my body could absorb
2: it just become
1: this this sort of paranoid jackass all day that would be uh, you know my responsibilities would would uh, you know were, were pretty vast and it was in a way still the hardest thing I had to ever do uh, because I had to learn trial by fire you know because we uh, we they started me off. In a very busy time, let me just describe the shop very quickly. So this was compared to many of these other large trailer houses, like Trailer Park that everyone right. knows because it has the biggest sign ever. That's right. it's it kind of near the CNN Tower on Sunset Boulevard. It's kind of near like it's I think it's it's near like Sunset and Highland. Um, and those places have a hundred edit bays and thirty assistants, and they have like probably fifteen. Petabyte servers and all this, crut. it's like oh my god! They have like probably three floors. It's just crazy. I've worked at a lot of these giant, giant, huge companies before. This one was four, five edit bays, one Chem, which is kind of like a like a like a thirty-five millimeter little flatbed editor that um, it's, uh, it's it compared to a Steam back, it's this German one, um, and then. You know, it was some gal answering the phone, and uh, <laughs> and four editors, and then Jordan, who's like the principal of the the company, and then myself, this only assistant editor. So a tiny shop, and some and some gal would come in every week and just do a payroll. Like it was. But don't was small. you
0: think that's better? Don't you think it's better that you were in something like that rather than the big, you know, McDonald's of it all?
1: I don't. I don't know. You know. So I have an identical twin um just like you have two identical twins yeah. so I'm an identical twin and people ask me what it's like to um grow up with a twin and uh I I always kind of um I I always kind of answer in a very coy way compared to what because that's something that personally is unknowable I right. never know, you don't what, know. What, it would, what it would have been like if I got an assistant editor job like uh if, Oh, I studios and north hollywood and i was there for a couple of years and then they moved me up i mean it probably would have been very similar but uh in this case it was i was glad i started off in this very niche of scripted content because uh, it, uh, i will say that in case anyone is unaware it's rare for editors to to kind of bounce out of their lanes so uh mm-hmm. let's say that like if uh if someone is a scripted editor, it's rare that they would become a promo and trailer editor it's it's just it, it's something that is considered um it, it would be considered just kind of uh
0: your niche yeah. it's almost like your niche, and people don't yeah. let you out of that
1: yeah, i would say that now are there exceptions of course, there's exceptions to everything that's great, but uh at the same time, I will say that it was uh, it was kind of a fun thing to work in this neat little part of the trailer world and understand, you know, that, you know, it's like this two minutes of content is really cool and it's uh, it's really neat, but, you know, I had to learn how to work with film, how to work with videotape, how to work with standard definition, which was all they had at the time. And then this new HD thing was coming out. Uh, so it was just all these different formats and tapes. And, you know, uh, you know, to this day, I will say that it was just, it was, hardest thing i had to do because there was so much to learn in a very very short amount of time and frankly uh you know i had to also make those little mistakes that one also makes in college but i had to make them at an entry-level job where it was okay that i was you know making dumb mistakes and not getting fired well yeah Um,
0: i mean but don't you think also the people who you were working with were in your position at one time too. I mean... Everyone, we, everyone. Know, yeah. Again, We've some of them in. not,
1: and you, but the thing is you can actually tell now, in, uh, almost 20 years into my career, I can actually tell to this day the people who were never assistant editors. And that's just because <laughs> they're kind of... Uh, generally, many of them are not very tech savvy. Hmm. And uh, and I will say with, with certainty that many of them um, are not very organized. And that is very problematic. Organization is... It's it's I next to so. godliness in, in this uh, because, uh, you know, something that we always you know, talk about is um, something we always talk about is, uh, it's a, you know, a bit of a dark thing, of course. But, you know, whenever we have um, a project organized, then uh, we're always just like, you know, any of us could just get in, back. When, and this is, of course, during a pandemic. And if you know, uh, we are, uh, you know, all working from home when we can. But when we worked at offices, then, you know, it's like, uh, you know, we would uh, we would always be making sure that everything is organized because yeah it's a grim prospect but no, what if i get in a car wreck on the way home what if i'm injured tomorrow what if it's right yeah it's like where where is this stuff it's critical to know where someone's latest work is in a a digital environment so you know well luckily in this
0: luckily in this uh professions that we have you can never have a sick day you can never really have a personal day or like you're you know your brother's wedding or something like. Yeah. You can't really have any sort of life outside of this because that that camera's rolling.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is. You're and you're I used to think that. I, I, I used to think that, but uh, later on in my career, I started to kind of have this uh, this notion of of saying, uh, you know, that I couldn't. Uh, that I actually can take some personal time, I th- and I think that's actually very important. That was the, that was one of my most important things later in life, especially in my late thirties, where I started to say, yeah. Uh, do i really want to do i really want to completely constantly work my butt off on every single job well of course we do but uh should there right. be a work life balance absolutely and that's that was one of the things i had to learn later later in my career but, yeah. so i was uh you know having said that comment <laughs> i did uh <laughs> i did probably some of the longest hours in my professional career ever um working at Celluloid heroes i still have, like, an invoice. Let's say I used to kind of invoice the company, even though I was, you know, on the payroll. Like, mm. They would need to know, especially for uh, records, how long certain jobs would take. Um, and even though we were a, a place that made movie trailers, we did we did actually, we made a documentary once um, with this uh, director um, who was kind of newer at the time, and now a lot of people know this guy in the horror world. His name's Mike Mendez. Um, and uh, it just just one of the funniest goofiest guys to work with and he uh, he was like i have this hell of a movie and uh it's it's called uh, masters of horror which of course showtime uh you know made an entire series oh yeah called masters of horror but it, it was sort of loosely based on this documentary uh and it was uh the documentary was technically i think a sequel to another documentary about horror movies um that, that, and it was hosted by Bruce Campbell. So we, we, they shot Bruce Campbell over at one of those spooky shops over in, uh, in Burbank. And then, uh, then we started the task of understanding, like what I was saying before, that Mike Mendez is a hell of a director, but he is not a very organized editor. And <laughs> we realized he had cut quite a bit of the documentary on his own on these little videotapes. And he did it on a program that's called Final Cut Pro, which is kind of like the the redheaded stepchild of the editing world uh, that no one wants to talk about because uh, it's a it's a little bit loosey goosey. And we realized that out of the I don't know ninety tapes or so that he had uh, digitized, he had labeled every one of those tape tape zero zero one. What? <laughs> so, and God bless him. He, you know, he just didn't know. But you know, we were like, we had to do this. Thing that is called overcutting which means that i had to and this actually was my job that means you have to visually eye match you know every single shot using the master tape again based on you have to take a cut from like this other program that has no reference point at all you have to figure out what tape it came from you'd have to actually go and by by eye you have to match up
0: because whatever tape he had it wasn't the complete scene like he divided... it wasn't
1: the, he wasn't really using the master tape he was uh, he wasn't really using full resolution so we had to bring the tape in again uh, you know with the proper reference and something that we call time code which of course, is a computer generated code right. that, uh, that corresponds with uh, something called That uh, it's, it's kind of laid in on the videotape so that later when we're getting ready to finish the show, uh, you know, we can go back and uh, reference it in much higher resolution and we can, uh, you know, redigitize the tape that way. But uh, maybe I should take the moment to actually talk about what the responsibilities are. And how, should we talk about now how a show is edited?
0: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was going to get to that in the, in a, and first, who yeah. who hires you? Sure, yeah. Because um, so, I know, like, uh, lately, I feel like when I start a project, a couple weeks later, the editor's already starting because now they can edit so quickly. The dailies and everything, they're getting a jump yeah. on everything. So editors are in pretty quickly. Like, post is there.
1: Yeah, but of course we know why, and that's because if, uh, if they're ever a problem and you had to reshoot something, you need to know pretty damn fast. In the past you know, we would get, you know, the the film would go into the bath overnight. Uh, you know, you would get work prints. Uh, it would have to get digitized. And then it would go, this is the recent past. It, yeah, it, it I mean, go, people would get
0: would dailies, yeah. you know, the next day or day after. I feel like, like, I'm thinking just when I worked on Bones, and that was like yeah. mid-2000s, late-2000s, yeah. we would get dailies. I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm not. it's not archaic. I'm just saying, now it's like it's almost by the end of day they have like what they just shot and can look at it overnight
1: it's crazy i mean my my friend mark Loken is uh you know like he is so good at uh uh, he and his wife work uh, well no he he works over at e-film in atlanta now and he and his wife moved to that that atlanta office but before that he was so he was so good at um at color-correcting dailies, which is something that was not done until probably the last 10 years. He was so good at color-correcting dailies, Roger Deakins would literally fly his ass oh, wow. all over the planet to, to do this. He was the only one that Roger Deakins who, of course, is probably one of the most prolific uh, cinematographers well, yeah. ever. He was the only one that he trusted.
0: Do you think that being able to get these uh, dailies and edits quicker is harder? Because now you have more time and more eyes can get on it. Whereas before maybe the editors had time to really work with the takes and work with the scenes rather than the input of like, Oh, it's like, I don't know, too many eyes on it now. Do you think that that is a thing?
1: That's a good question. From what I do know, let's say that, um, I do know that, Producers do sometimes like to, to this day, they like to take a peek at, uh, yeah. at
2: yeah.
1: you know, but, you know uh, but they also want to see how everything's running on set. They, they want to work with UPM. They want to make sure that it, uh, I say, I would say that the producers do check in early on in the edit process, uh, you know, especially still while, while shooting now. Um, so we were just talking about um, that technology and how it's changed. I think now is a good time for me to kind of talk about um kind of this uh, strange moment that happened um, a little over nine years ago, um, mm-hmm. and it was uh, March 11th of 2011, um, <laughs> and it was one of the, the, the darkest days, um, you know, uh, in, in my industry, to, to say the least, and that was because, uh, you know, something that was kind of unthinkable changed the industry very quickly, similarly to this pandemic, really, but um, it was devastating, and it was, uh, there was a little area on the planet Um, which is, I think, closest to a place that I think you call a toku um, in northern Japan and the mighty hand of God, um, (laughs) offlined and destroyed uh, the six videotape factories on the planet that make videotape. And they also killed about 19,000 Japanese people (laughs) in this tsunami. And, um, you know, I remember it it really was kind of like life imitating art. And uh, it was like out of a movie because I was working at this, uh, this place at the time called Three Ball Productions, which is where... That was uh, the place that you know did things like The Biggest Loser, and I was working on another show at the time, um, and all of these phone banks. I was uh, my office. We all have private offices, of course, because it we, we drive people crazy with all the noise. Uh, so my office was kind of near these phone banks where all these post-production supervisors for each show. And there were probably about five or six shows going on at the time and a couple of TV pilots. And, uh, and I saw every phone ring at the same time.
2: and <laughs> All these
1: people just kind of like, uh, kind of, and my door was open and I, so I could see just these strange looks, uh, that people were giving and on the other end of the line. It was, uh, people probably at Comtel Media or something up in Burbank, which is a huge warehouse of videotape. And it's like all of these vendors just calling each post saying, okay, I, uh you know i' I can't raise anyone in northern Japan I think they're dead oh. I can I don't know when I can get you any new tape I have I have 4 thousand loads now I can give you four thousand loads camera loads I can give you six thousand. Camera loads for loser of this format. I can give you, you know, two thousand of IMX sixty, 60 minute, sixty IMX camera loads.
0: And sure the price? One hundred
1: <laughs> HDK SR masters at this price, and then I don't know when I'm getting any more. Got it? And we're we just kind of, we're all just like shaking. We're like, Jesus Christ! Like twenty thousand people are dead. We're watching this shit on the news, and we're like, what happens when we run out of tape?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> So it became, uh, you know, and this is where we started to see the adaptation. Because you can't reuse the the tapes. What you you can it was called what did they call it oh my gosh i should have I
0: mean,
1: I, oh it was called evaluated stock which means it was a kind of a fancy ambiguous term which would mean that they checked out sort of like spot checked the integrity of a tape to make sure and, and like i don't remember how they did this but this is what e did a lot where you know of course uh, e had all these daily programs so they would actually blow over like masters of like talk soup and stuff it was like it was like they were like ah no one's gonna watch that again. Was like they so they they would just have this reevaluate stock, and they would blow over it a few times. And I think there were check boxes of how many times they had taped over it. Oh my and God. that was about it. Yeah. so oh but that was, So it was that was one side of the adaptation. There was another side of the adaptation that was, um, you know, relatively new where people were taking. Um, they were taking. They were moving to cards. So they were taking, especially at this time, was when DSLRs, which is of course you know kind of like a, you know this, this digital single lens, single lens reflex cameras, uh, which are you know they made these these Canon cameras instead of like having sort of these professional huge big body cameras and you could actually take these fancy little H D cameras and set them up in the field and it would look sort of cinematic <laughs> and not like a newsfinder sort of thing. So uh, uh, that actually afforded the possibility of this thing that we call run and gun in the field and especially in, in reality shows where that was where we would see these Alaska shows coming up and you would have these these GoPros and you would have a, a one producer just running around in the field and mounting like a, a uh you know mounting a DSLR on a plane and you know having another one on a rig and having like a couple of gopros and he would just you know throw everything in a backpack that was muddy and full of ice and they would come back weeks later and be like i got a story you know and, uh, so they, they would they would kind of grab all this footage and we would put it onto hard drives and the hard drives were an archive and the hard drives were being shelved and then that would be transferred over onto a server and we would have backups of everything and it would, then it would go to another backup at the end of the show but yeah you know, that was how we had to adapt within i would say only a matter of maybe two months we had wow. to yeah, it was fast.
0: And do you think, like, jumping ahead, jumping ahead with, like, you were saying, like, GoPros and like how everything has advanced, that the you have enormous amounts of footage now to, when you edit.
1: Yes. Like, yeah. I mean, uh, would you like to kind of talk about the numbers on that? Oh yeah,
0: I would love to hear that. Okay. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's gotta be insane. Uh... <laughs> okay. Like, uh, you know. In in the scripted world, Terrence Malick, notwithstanding, I'm looking at you, Terry Malick. I love your films, but my God, do you know how many? uh, Okay, the guy shot a million feet of film. He shot a million feet of film for The Thin Red Line. He made basically 12 movies because on average, I would say – the most films are shoot about 100, 150,000 feet of film. And, uh, and, uh, you know, let's say that you're shooting usually on, I, what would you say? Maybe it's for the scripted world, maybe a five to one ratio. And by, by this ratio, I mean how much you've shot versus how much actually ends up in the damn movie.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yeah, depen- it depends. One, oh, oh yeah. I mean, it depends on yeah. what show you are, but yeah. I would think 30% on average is edited out just timing yeah. and story cuts and shit like yeah. that. Yeah
1: and especially on uh you know especially on uh on on t v shows yeah. uh, you know doing you know, if you're doing a, a feature then of course a feature is uh you know I, I think that they're a little more liberal with with budget obviously so they uh, they tend to shoot more uh, they tend to spend sometimes a little bit more on certain scene work but you know that's changing too um mm-hmm. but one thing that I saw constantly in the the t v world especially reality t v Uh, which was amazing um, was that because unscripted requires um, it requires someone to navigate the story in a giant sea of footage. Um, We shoot anywhere from a ratio of 10 to sometimes 50 to one. We shoot, basically all day with several cameras i mean um i'll just uh, I'll, I'll give kind of like so for the, every the biggest...
0: so for every minute that airs there's 50 minutes not aired that's correct wow yeah
1: jesus yeah I mean... yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's on the low end i mean shit i've worked on some of those alaska shows where you just swear that they, should, they just set up cameras like for like a couple of years and just come up with like like a ratio of 75 hours of for every one, I've seen I've seen things like that where it's just there's uh, there's people who go out there and their job is literally to, um, you know, set up, uh, like set up time lapses, just hang out and share a joint with somebody. <laughs>
0: like, well, yeah, cause... I mean, you have no there's no boundary for it, especially in in like, editing Expedition Unknown. You're you're almost I mean you have the scenes. Sort of set up in some sort of script, I'm thinking, but there's plenty of unknown. Yeah, that you're just uh, trying uh, to capture uh, the moment, you know, or the second of it.
1: Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, I'm under NDA on 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 most of these shows, of course, but I can say that I think I could probably explain that uh, a show like Expedition Unknown, which is of course still on with uh, with Josh Gates. Uh, and is produced by ping pong productions for uh, you know for discovery. Now it was the flagship of Travel Channel and in twenty seventeen travel channel was bought up for twelve billion dollars by um by uh, by Discovery in order to compete with their direct competitor, which is A and E networks which owns History Channel of course. Uh, but when we were working and then they, and they, they all the good stuff that was on travel percolated over into, uh, into primetime discovery. So that's how that happened. But, uh, you know, working on that show, you know, off and on over the last five years, um, it's, uh, that's actually, you know, let's, let's just say you know for obvious reasons we we go into that show planning for a number of months uh and and, you know this is this is something that every everyone who knows that show knows because there's a plenty of behind the scenes stuff uh where if you work on that show you're in the you're in the movie kid like (laughs) like the crew is in the show all the time but um I would say a show like that, for obvious reasons, you have to plan it ahead of time and know kind of your subject matter and know whom you're going to be meeting with. And you have to know scene by scene with the logistics of flights and all this other stuff and passports. You have to know kind of what you're going in and doing. But at the same time, no, we, we don't uh, we, we don't know what the hell we're doing on Expedition Unknown. Uh, my, my friends uh, Jesse and Mark edited, uh, you know, the past this season that's airing now, and I, I did a little a couple of pieces of it uh, this this um this past January as well. But I mean yeah they, they uh they they edited an episode that's that has aired at this time and uh where there was a guy who bought up um who bought up some land uh in like a in um, in Normandy and after all these years, after what, seventy five years, uh he was like, What's that pipe? And he found out that it was a giant network of German bunkers. We didn't know that. It's like no, yeah, it's like we knew that, that that was there, but you know he we we opened a couple of them that had never been opened in seventy five years. So uh, you know when and I actually That's got the crazy. privilege to work on an episode uh, where the, uh, the the Sultan uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, who uh, was a Sultan in the fifteen hundreds and uh, was probably the most important part of the Ottoman Empire, um, he, uh, he you know we, where we actually discovered this crypt. Um, that's now in Hungary, actually, uh, and we discovered it on camera, and it was just one of the, the most incredible, touching things to to really see uh, the sort of boyish excitement that everyone loves about Josh Gates, because it's it's sort of like this you know, this great uh, you know big American spirit and a guy that has like a, a huge smile, but also that show wouldn't work without Josh at all because he's also the exec- the exec- executive producer of the show, and I guarantee you that man knows. Every frame that sh- that was shot, he has a very very good photographic memory, and he knows everything that was uh, that was done.
0: Well, yeah. and that's probably tremendously helpful, and not like you know. Yeah.
1: But then, so let's look back at a show that's actually on the air again now on USA, which is called The Biggest Loser. Yeah, and uh, it, which was uh, created um, back in 2004, but it was sold to, to NBC by uh, I think
0: and JD I watched almost. For- every season until they got rid of Jillian. And then I kind of was like on and off. And then I yeah. have this season recorded, but I haven't, or, you know, I can DVR it, whatever. Um, yeah. but I haven't so, watched it yet. But. Yeah,
1: so that was one of those shows where, um, there's a long time ago, so I'm sure it's okay for me to say, but they were, uh, you know, the first season of that show, unbeknownst to most people, that was actually started off as being kind of a smaller show, um, you know where uh, NBC was like, yeah, it might be cute, it might be fine, uh, and so uh, they. I don't think it had aired yet, but uh, I think that they, they. Okay, no, that's not what had happened. They it was not airing yet, but they started to look at some of the cuts, and they were realizing that what they had was gold, and that they were like, this has the potential to be as big. Well, yeah, as, you get to that second third which is Survivor, week. Of course, on CBS.
0: You get to that second third week of like when the people plateau and they're working their balls off. And they're crying, and it's a sin. That's good yeah, TV, and,
1: and it was amazing. It's good TV. So, uh, you know, and th- that was sold without a pilot or anything like that. So it was just, uh, you know, they, they just knew that at the time, they just knew that um, they just knew that uh, what do you call it? They they knew that like that. JD Roth, it was uh, a very capable producer. JD Roth, of course, we know him as uh, you know being yeah, this uh, teenage host from um, from um nickelodeon from the 80s Funhouse, and, uh, yeah it, and you know then became uh this kind of uh, tv producer mogul and you know, i'm it, it, still very close with him to this day you know he's it, it, still producing tv and uh or was you know, it like finders
0: he, keepers it was finders keepers i think
1: i, I think know. he did that but he also did uh he did uh funhouse Oh, it was he fun was host house, of, yeah. of TV's yeah, uh, on Nickelodeon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you yeah. know a few other things, and you know he also was. Uh, He's still very chummy to this day with like uh, Mark Summers from Dare, Double Ooh. Dare, and I got to meet the man once. Oh, uh, that's a But good one. you know we, um, so uh, you know I was an assistant editor under him, and you know then I became an editor, and I, I loved working with that guy. I just saw him like a few months ago before the pandemic, and you know it's it, it's it felt like old times. It really is good to it's it's just it's just all smiles. Um, so uh, you know. I think that at that time in 2004 NBC looked at some of the some of the cuts and looked at some of the stuff that they had and they said they're like oh my god here's more money so then it went from I don't know maybe about four, uh, like a four camera show uh and to like a nine camera show and by what am I what am I talking about here what i'm talking about is multicam show multicam editing where if you're trying to think about it in a sense of you're trying to think about multicam editing in a sense of sort of um, recording these amazing moments, just like they do in, uh, in in a scripted show, but because of the volume of that, then uh, you, you can imagine how much content you can get.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you have what you start out with ten contestants. You got to watch them work out. Yeah. You're literally watch. You're you are watching ten people one day that's 10 days you know what i mean like i don't know that's how i yeah. think of it of like where they were they with that trainer and now they're with this trainer and now you ought to go through all of this footage just to get that one beat of sweat that came down perfectly <laughs> to yeah, show so, how so, hard so, that guy's working out
1: I, so let's let's talk about that number for for a second yeah uh, so let's talk about. You know, I, I just pulled. A, I, I know I sound distracted for a second. So uh, it's because I pulled out my calculator. I'm uh, on my iPhone. So uh, let's say that we've got nine cameras uh, that are running. Um, you know, let's say that they're shooting um, most of the time. Uh, you know, out of a like a, a like if they're shooting on twelves. So let's say that each camera shoots. Let's say each camera shoots nine videotapes. So that's 81 hours a day. So you're shooting yeah. 81 hours. 81 tapes a day, 81 loads. Yeah, you know, so you're shooting nine hours of tape with nine cameras. Now, uh, so let's say that you're shooting five days a week. That's 405 tapes. Now, <laughs> Biggest Loser shoots for about uh, I'll just say several months. I don't want to I don't want to reveal exactly how long. I think that,
0: it's like three months. Like it's, yeah, it's I,
1: it's I would say it's it's normally around ten to twelve. That's about uh, twelve to fourteen weeks. I right. So let's just go on the low end, and uh, so that's four hundred and five tapes a week times twelve, and uh, that is four thousand eight hundred and sixty hours of television. Kim,
0: that's insane. That's insane. I mean,
1: uh, do, uh, you, you, we were talking about the tape thing earlier. I mean, do you want to know what that looks like? It's hallways. Full of tape. Well, it's just, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's hallways full of camera loads. But and, that uh, is
0: so. When you have that, how many editors do you have on that show?
1: Um, I would say that's a that's let's say it's on the bigger side. I, uh, you know, I don't want to completely reveal it, but I would say that you know we were usually uh around between six to eight editors. That would then we would have a staggered start, and they would have about probably one lead assistant editor or if it's a more complicated show we would have two lead assistant editors who of course work daytime and those things especially back then those those media composers we were talking about that were seventy thousand dollars each and you know the rental on them was probably about twelve hundred twelve hundred bucks back then it's probably still around the same to get the desk and you know, it's so uh, on a weekly rental you know you better believe that those things are expensive you've got to you know you have to work those things hard and put them away wet every night. So assistant editors would be working largely at night, digitizing these, these tapes. And it becomes, you know, that, that's a, it's a thankless job, but it's a, it's a very important one to run around and throw all these tapes in, and then uh, you know, set the resolution. You hit the red the big red button on Avid, which means you're recording the tape, and it runs through the whole thing. And then you have to group all of these, which means, of course, like let's say that, especially if you're shooting an event that's uh, that's being covered. Uh, at the same location by several angles, then we are grouping the footage together uh, to so that we can look uh, you know simultaneously at, at a contemporaneous event and we can see all of these different cameras that are covering the event, hopefully quite well. So uh, you know when you're putting together this show, what we do is we after we group and organize this footage, then a group a, a team of people that we call story producers. Hmm. Um, the story producers, will go through the footage um initially now this is not really something that's done in the scripted world in the scripted world that that editor's job is to know um every frame of footage but that's because they're only shooting a few hours of footage uh you know for you know at most for each right. scene you know it's uh, you know it's 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 not very complicated an editor worth the salt should know what's been shot and in a case like this editors are expensive so uh they have these People, the story team of story producers and story editors, which uh, the story producer works about the story editor in the, the unscripted world, and uh, they will lay out. You know, a lot of times the story producers, the person who is in the field, they will lay out kind of a rough version of, of each scene or each act of television. Um, and so, let's say that you had. Um, you know, a scene like in Biggest Loser that was uh, in elimination, which is usually that, that was, those eliminations were usually about seven or eight minutes on the clock um, yeah. for air. Yeah, it was, I'd say about seven or eight minutes scenes. it's very tense toward the end of the two-hour show. But then, uh, a string out of that would hopefully be maybe 100% fat. So you talked about like maybe a 15-minute string out would be, um, you know, would be an ideal length. And then I would cut together like kind of a rough version of that, I would say a, a good editor can cut in the unscripted world. At least can cut together roughly three to four minutes on average of decent content per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that actually is a little slower than it's a little slower than the scripted world. I would say the scripted world you can probably get to a rough cut, you probably get, I would say, probably six or seven minutes a day. Right. Uh, and that's just because, um, you know, it, and then you have to go back and finesse it. But uh, the, the friends of mine who have uh, worked um, in the scripted world on TV shows, they say, uh, on average, it's roughly around six or seven minutes that you can crank out a day. So it's quite a bit faster, but not like, you know, you know its it it's still it takes some time
0: to, when to you, get something right. When you have, let's say, eight editors working, Together on all of this footage, how does continuity play in
1: that? Like poorly. No, I'm <laughs> I'm no, no, I, would, I mean, I'm. Uh, so, I,
0: I think so. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
1: Good question. So, uh, is, uh, let's talk about not just continuity, but let's wait. By, by continuity, do you mean uh, visually or just the this, this story itself?
0: I'm. I'm. Well, I think visually. First okay. off, I mean story-wise, I think especially with uh, like competition reality or um you were saying like story editors, you have a certain you have the ending that you want to get to and and you're doing this editing of build up to get to that. So that I would assume in continuity-wise you're doing whatever you can because even like, look, I watch a lot of I watch a lot of uh, Housewives. There's yeah. a lot of like editing of like looking at everyone's reaction to what this bitch just said, yeah. <laughs> you know. And it did, yeah. you know, that that didn't happen. Like she went, <gasps> and the and then they went, and then she looked like, you know. So I get that, but
1: yeah, I, I so, guess are we misrepresent? So first of all, are, are we? Are we compressing time? Yes, absolutely. That's well within the rules. Right. Are we um, are we making someone look possibly better or bitchier or something than than they are? Yes, we can actually do that. I yeah, can't yeah. change the very core personality of somebody uh, in, in an unscripted. Uh, oh yeah, world. yeah. 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 Uh, but you know, it's uh, you know, it, this is to, to say that we do misrepresent occasionally, you know, misrepresenting a you know a story. Uh, I'll say generally that's something that has been done and is is that ethical? Well, uh, you know we, we all know the uh, that there's we we all know the United States Marine Corps and how they have uh, you know they have this sort of um, you know they have a lot of these these they have a lot of acronyms of Navy of course but uh, everyone knows USMC and whenever people are complaining and getting butthurt about certain things in the Marine Corps. So I've heard that this uh, phrase going around saying it actually stands for you signed the motherfucking contract.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so <laughs> well, it's the, not really the same, reality that yeah. the, the housewives the are getting applies, the same two hours. Here yeah. So, yeah
2: They're
0: getting like, two hours of makeup before yeah. they do scenes. And I'm sure even with like biggest loser, the enhancement of the workouts and everything. And like, I don't know. Like you're probably coming into a lot of it at, towards the end of the workout when people are really tired and you're showing how they're struggling and shit. So, yeah. But that's part of why you're watching it. You're you you yeah. you, you know. I want to see them made up. I kind of don't want to see them without makeup. And I I want to see these people sweat. You know what I mean? It's like
1: yeah. And that's it's, why uh, I'm watching and, and, but it. But to get to get that little five minute montage scene for example and montages are of course a, a really excellent tool that we use to
0: uh, to, kind of pass
1: through, uh, to pass through a uh, an act uh you know so we're talking about something like a, a, a like some we're covering some simultaneous action that's happening concurrently with all of these different characters that we know in the show and we are trying to move the story ahead together with these characters now, uh, let's say that's a five-minute scene. So that's probably going to be at least maybe a couple hours of footage, you know, to to get all of should get the best shots of that. That's in focus, right. or something that's uh, that has the you, know, you know that's that's showing someone uh, you know showing someone's teeth gritting, or you know, or God forbid, there's like some kind of an accident or something, um, you know, on my actual uh, website. Then um, there's one scene that I had, uh, you know, that's kind of the opposite of that, uh, where. Um, you know, I, I think I have one of the intros for the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, and I loved working on that on season twenty one because it was this amazing, controversial season because they had really broke they had broke form and they had, uh, they had decided to shoot. Um, they decided to shoot not in Vegas and they shot, they shot down in Florida and uh, they were using uh, different teams and stuff like that. So uh, you know, casting wise, it was just a bit of a departure but um that was only kind of they really had at most only a couple of cameras covering
2: Mm. that
1: uh it was uh, so they had a very light crew so but it makes for a lot more dramatic moments because uh the the audience is kind of uh you know having to find the story with someone running all around uh you know with with a single camera it makes for a much more dramatic thing than it would for like a Nine camera show, and by that I mean toward the end of of one of these teases that I was working on, uh, you know. Then yes, we absolutely had. Unfortunately, we had one of the fighters uh, in our cast, uh, you know, named Steve Montgomery. Um, We uh, he had um, an accident uh, with hydration, which is what a lot of fighters do when they are cutting weight to make that 170 weight. And this guy is 6'3", so getting down to 170 is uh, largely artificial, let's say. It's using a (laughs) lot of things. He, unfortunately, drank um, way too much distilled water, and when you are doing that, you're not hydrating yourself. There's no minerals, and your body can't absorb it. So he basically became dehydrated. And on camera, we had someone literally running uh, with uh, with his camera while he was seizing in his bed.
0: Oh and my he's, god! He's fine now.
1: He's totally fine. But when that happens, uh, you know, there was a bit of a speed bump in his career because yeah, with youseas, you cannot fight for I think six months or a year. Um, you yeah, so I, poor and Steve. It, yeah. So
0: when yeah. you get, I'm sure it's not just in that show, but in editing. You must have a line sometimes, especially when you're, you, you're editing reality, you must have a line of like, oh, is that too personal or does that really relate to this show or should we We show-
1: Okay. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. So there's, we, we do know, of course, that, uh, you know, this is doesn't really apply necessarily to reality TV, but it kind of does, with, uh, where uh, in 1995 on the Jenny Jones show, then uh, there was a man, this, uh, this didn't ever air, the, the, the event happened uh, between, uh, between the taping and uh, this, this event, and it is true that this guy had a secret crush on his friend and neighbor, and the friend and neighbor, uh, it was a homosexual, and uh, the friend and neighbor was heterosexual and had some mental problems, but uh, he did murder this man uh, in the days after the filming. And it, it was kind of did uh, have, a, there was a question of ethics of saying, you know, uh, did, uh, did did this company to go too manipulate. far? Was this wrong? Right. Yeah. And uh, there's people, especially in the kind of in the early days of reality shows, people were asking uh, how, you know, if, if this was ethical. And uh, that's why especially in some of my earlier shows that I was working on, we, we did actually have those questions of like, are we moving the goalposts? Or are we kind of screwing around with people? We've asked ourselves, uh, like, is this ethical? Do we have to really show something like this? And right. I think that I will just kind of respond to a certain vagary and say, you know, that that's the, 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 there's some networks I've seen where they have said some things that I really think are sometimes uh, not the most ethical thing. To, uh, not the most ethical answer, um, and then there's other times that I think that we, in large part, have made the right call. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, it's uh, a thin
0: line, and I mean, and 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 thin, and by I mean thin, it's like you know a second too long, or two seconds too long yeah. to, and you're holding that shot, or you you're holding that just too long to make it uncomfortable, or abusing that person, or whatever. I mean, it, it's a huge responsibility.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll. Uh, I can. Um, I'll just kind of talk about the, the the biggest example of when I really knew this was um, kind of a problem, and that was uh, when I was a lead assistant editor on a show that was had a couple seasons on, on MTV that was called Breaking Bonaducci. and
0: oh yeah, oh, yeah.
1: Uh, that show. since is two thousand. This is two thousand five. Right. So that show. We had a we had a conversation about it, um, and uh, the, I'll just say uh, the the pilot that we had that, that had been shot. This was when um, Danny was sober, and uh, it was let's just say that um, without giving anything away, I'll say it was a very different show. It was very tame. It was kind of let's just uh, kind of say there there may have been some moments of that was very like light. It, it made the Osbournes which was on at the time look, look heavy. Like it was, uh, it was, uh, it was just like, uh Oh, why is Danny or like, Oh, Danny Bonaduce is delivering a pizza on an Aston Martin. Oh man. He's crazy. Like, Oh man, is he going to go in and eat the pizza with the people? That's nuts. Why is he doing that? And then we started to shoot first season of the show and the, the guy was like, And this was on camera and it was actually, you know, was was shown. So I could say, yeah, that was very real. And he was injecting something into his arms uh, that had uh, a picture of a horse on it. And it's because he was doing the roids. He was doing lots and lots and lots of roids. And uh, he had um, been a, you know, he also, you know, decided um, to break his sobriety. Um, and he did it on camera very much in front of us. And he kind of knew that he loved being a spectacle and then he would have these horrible fights with, uh, you know, his wife at the time, who was named Gretchen. And, uh, you know there's you know that was all of course displayed uh you know you could watch that show for yourself 15 years ago yeah. if you find it and, uh, and you know where he it's a train a i mean it was a of, train he ripped the camera out of the hands of a young woman who was our cameraman i think she was our steady cam operator and he ran and just you know yelled at his wife in, in the closet with a cam- like a, a company camera uh like uh, there's my friend bill hawkhauser was like the, the you know like like they a lot of people thought it was fake he would get into fights with danny you know, like, you know, and, you know, on camera in the middle of the night. And uh, and then, like, uh, he would be on the phone with our exec- executive producer, Ned, Troy Searer, who has had, like, a, a huge career ever since then. So, you know, we are all younger people that were just kind of, like, going, you know. Like, we, what the, is the, this? The post-soup at the time was saying, <laughs> okay, I'm going to remind you guys. You guys have been really good about Biggest Loser, about not saying who's losing a lot of weight. You're not telling your spouses this. You know, people aren't going to Vegas betting on Biggest Loser. They're like, we're going to remind you that. You're under NDA for for this thing. Uh, So, you know, that you cannot talk about this thing, you know, until it airs. But, you know, it's like this guy is doing these things are sort of criminal acts. And, you know, we're not going to charge him for, you know, getting steroids and shooting up on camera. But Jesus, this guy is doing self-destructive behavior. Don't tell your spouses about this. And we're like, okay. So it was, you know, it was a weird show to work on uh, because uh, there was kind of a, a, a question of, at what point do we step in? Well, yeah, I
0: I, I think that's your biggest problem is like morally, you know, a lot of times, you know, with the show, like intervention and you have all of that and, and that helps people. And it it definitely helps families of people who have drug uh, problems and how to deal with them. So it's not that it's all bad and we're all bad people for watching them. It is examples of, of, this behavior that, you know, if you didn't see it, you wouldn't believe it type thing.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it, it, it's something where, um, you know, the, the, there's a question of, um, and then of course, there, there's people who on the other end of things are, you know, where there's, there's people who accuse, um, you know, reality shows of, of being almost completely fabricated and silly. And that was a kind of a different thing that had started. I would place that roughly around two. 2009 is when you started to see some shows that I may or may not have worked on but some shows that were clearly utter fabrications and people didn't care. And then the uh, and then eventually the like the biggest version of that sort of is, uh, you know, is, is Duck Dynasty, which uh, was on A&E, and it was, you know, that was pulling numbers of like, you know, like insane numbers, oh like God, 8 yeah. million, yeah. things like that. Yeah. And now that was, everyone knows yeah. that is, you know, it was a complete fabrication, but that's on a reality show. It's a reality show format. It's a comedy. It's So, and then, uh, and then things started to become more real again. And so there are all these different iterations and it was important. I think it's important. I would always urge Editors, especially newer ones starting out, to know how to cut these different kinds of formats of shows. Because uh, if someone looks on your resume, they say, "Well, it's something that we, we call a build show, for example, which is like those car shows on on Discovery." Mm. So if you don't if you don't really know how to cut one of these kinds of shows. Um, then you're not going to get the job and someone else is. So even though it's uncomfortable to constantly be looking for work and looking for a new show, it's also, uh, you know, I could have been, I could have kind on biggest loser for 15 years. Right. I could have, yeah, I could have. And I know people who did, and it was very cushy, but you know, getting off that, you know, getting oh, off yeah. a big run of that. And yeah. then it's like, you know, what, what if you only had one show on your resume that's, that's not good. oh no, I know one.
0: i I definitely think I stayed at bones too long, but and and you lose contacts and you lose you know just working with different people and and different rhythms you get into with other shows and yeah, no so, you got yeah, you gotta well, you gotta move and, around
1: and you know and also finding you know in you know navigating your career path over over a number of years with uh, with a lot of the same people, and so it's it's about you know finding a really good team. I mean, okay. I just came off of a show. Uh, where a friend of mine was a showrunner on it. And, and I've known him longer than I've known my husband. And that's that's 16 years. So it's just kind of this uh, this funny thing uh, where, you know, I, uh, the, the people who are problematic to work with, let's say, they're the ones where you just, yeah, I don't know where they're at, but, you know, it, it get, word gets around town, just like any industry. Word gets around town. It's like, oh, that guy. Oh, that gal. It's like uh, not good to work with. You don't play well with others. It's not good. But then, you talk about um, how we work as a team, just like how you work with uh, as a team, and you have your, you know, and, and you have your gang boss and all those other crews, and you're working with
0: with people. For I have years, my Ethan. But,
1: <laughs> yeah, and like with Ethan, but yeah. uh, who of course is my husband, and was yeah. uh, on on the uh, on the show a few episodes ago. Yeah. But uh, how it works with these teams and story producers, we already discussed you know, sort of how we plan the arc of the story and then we have what's shot and then we have the string out. Um, Then during the editing process, um, in a perfect world, let's say that we would have three cuts that would go out, which it would would say rough cut, locked cut, fine cut, that very rarely happens. Normally far more um, edits and revisions that that go up the chain internally than they go out to the network. The network, uh, you know, usually has several contradictory notes that we have to go through and figure out and then we you know we we adjust in some cases we reshoot if we have to and right. that's it so uh so in the in that process i am working with a story producing team um of varying scales that are doing one of two things for me and uh where they are usually either um, working ahead and following the story you know, in later acts of a TV show, for example. Um, or they're helping me find certain shots that are addressing notes. or uh, uh, And again, this is post-string out process when I'm, when I'm going through and say, hey, that's good, that's good, that's not working, that's not working. Or they're doing something else uh, that is uh, known quite well in the industry, which is uh, where I'm working with sound bites. And we are editing these bites together um, in a very – uh, you know, you know in, in a very kind of difficult way. And it's something that we call Frankenbiting um, where <laughs> we are. Uh, it's like Frankenstein's monster. That's kind of like where that portmanteau comes from. So there's there's other things like uh, like music, for example. Right. Like um, are you
0: editing music in or that's the music editor? Like are you giving your cut over to like your final cut over and then music is put in and then that's...
1: Big, bigger show like like especially like uh, like a star wars movie or something like that absolutely it's a whole other department
0: in many right. ways. And,
1: then, and, and then they're working with let's say more temporary tracks uh, right is what they are. but uh for for a guy like me okay unscripted editors we have to wear a lot of hats we have to wear all the hats we have to um put together some in some cases effects titles we have to put together like all these um very very complicated things so basically it's almost like being the 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 director sort of uh, yeah it's where we uh, we're given an incredible amount of agency
0: over, you're the post director uh,
1: yeah well that's a whole other job actually but uh, yeah but, but being an editor yeah i know what you mean you have to actually go through um the steps of not only creating this uh you know this this good story roughing it out smoothing it out smoothing it down and usually concurrently you are scoring it with music you're putting in sound effects you're putting in just all these these pieces that okay so those those like shows that they shoot for discovery like up in alaska that are just big 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 shows or like a big build show for, for for discovery especially they love their big crazy openings with big time lapses and aerial shots and things. And especially right. because of drones. I mean, like uh, even just 10, 10 short yeah. years ago, if you asked a, if you asked a producer for aerial shots, he would have told you to go fuck yourself. Cause it was about 20 <laughs> grand for a, uh, for a helicopter. And a there's mount
0: too and much, camera. there's too much drone footage. Now you need yeah. your own like drone yeah, editor. Could,
1: yeah. Now you can, yeah, there's drone footage of everything, which is amazing. Uh, but it's uh, so, yeah, we have to, you know, put together so much and we have to use like especially sound effects and we have to, it's some there's a lot of terms for it but it's one thing that we call it is layering uh we're adding just a little bit of texture to it uh and then we have to go through and do a kind of a rough mix on this as well which is of course you know someone else's professional job to professionally mix something or professionally do an effects past you know visual effects or professionally do color correction mm. but sometimes we have to do sort of you know rough passes at all of this or we have to make uh, you know we have to go through and make uh you know make these sound effects really work and we have to you know figure out what this is going to look like in the finished product which is what we call online editing which is a kind of a throwback term to just uh you know to putting these remember what we were talking about an hour ago with tape to tape it's it's you know where it's basically taking in the old world we were taking several decks in a giant machine room and literally putting the show together shot by shot it's obviously done uh you know digitally now and we just kind of relink to the uh, to the high-res footage and someone with uh you know someone with a, a color correction system will color correct it. And at the same time, usually at the same facility, they will, there's someone else who will do a sound mix pass and they'll, they'll do any smoothing. They'll usually add the narration at some point around there. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the process um, that, that most of these shows have to go through. Jesus. Yeah. You know?
0: I, I mean, you have, you have so many intricate little things to do. It's, and, and it seems that like I was saying in the beginning, like post comes on so early now, Fuck, man! You need all that time.
1: Yeah, we do. But uh, but then again, just like uh, you know, I think that <laughs> any any producer would acknowledge this uh, is that our schedules are getting um, you know tighter. Do right you, a bit tighter.
0: Do you do you think that in our new little world of you know COVID that you will? I would assume they'll have some editors work from home now. At least, um, all it, of us have to. Yeah. yeah, at least in this, you know, until we get it going and maybe get a vaccine, whatever. But do you think that will make you work longer hours? <laughs> Don't you think you'll work I, more?
1: Yeah, uh, we are all going through. Um, we are all going through an adjustment disorder. Any, uh, you know, it's, it, anyone would know anyone. Uh, with any kind of uh, certification in some sort of uh, psychiatric medicine, would know that much, most of the Western world is going through an adjustment <laughs> disorder. So it, it is true that like literally anything in this pandemic, it seems like it takes three times as long. But I did finish a show that was uh, that is airing in July. Uh, it's it's the, 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 the reboot of History's Greatest Mysteries, and we have Lawrence Fishburne uh, hosting. And unfortunately. That's uh, you know, I don't think we shoot any host wrap done, so he's just narrating it now. But uh, yeah, you know, in future episodes, I'm sure he'll be hosting. At least that's what, what Deadline said. Uh, but, but we had to finish an episode, uh, two-hour episode of History's Greatest Mysteries, um, and uh, we had to, to finish it remotely. Uh, you know, over over a number of weeks and months, and it was I was blessed to have work. There's a lot of people who don't have work, and we had to figure out a way to do this uh, remotely. And there's a number of programs that people use to uh safely um be able to access uh these cuts and footage because it is quite true of course that um you know it it, it causes a bit of an issue uh, so and what do i mean by this uh, you know it's this is a standpoint of security right um,
0: because where, nothing's tangible
1: yeah it's you're talking about having to remote in on on a show that's hard and uh it, Uh, It's, you know, everyone's kind of zooming, everyone's texting each other. It's like, I got to look for this, got to look for this, got to look for this. It's automatically adding some more time. And that's, yes, of course, emotionally, especially in in April, when we were still adjusting through this pandemic, then, you know, we're all a little bit better now uh, uh, because now it's the end of May. But like, if we, um, you know, back in April, we were all still kind of like sobbing once a day and stuff, uh, you know, myself included. So it wasn't ideal, but, um, but we got the show done. And it was that that was great. So uh, yeah, there's there's programs that people use, especially using like a a VPN, which of course means a virtual private network that can securely hook up. Let's call it uh, creating an emulation or an instance. Of a machine uh, that's you know located very far away and it can hook up to the server and uh, there's a few programs that do that. One of them is actually from Hewlett Packard from HP. It's called RGS and uh, you know where you, you hook into a secure connection and it feels like you're just c- connected to uh, to uh, a machine, but no, you're on your your computer is just connected to this one that's I don't know 30 miles away.
2: Oh, wow. And
1: uh, and it's a uh, and that actually provided that latency is not an issue, which is of course the time between a user performed an action and for the computer to respond as long as the latency is below a certain amount um, then I won't shoot my monitor so (laughs) (laughs) uh, yeah it's because that's actually very frustrating that's something that uh, you know latency is a very important thing and we'll talk about that when we talk about you know some of my new career uh, paths as well but um, yeah it's it it is kind of it's it's something that we uh, that uh, it's all important you know it's uh, in order to be able to efficiently and successfully create, um, a, like a TV show remotely, you no, know, we we are having to figure this out on the go. But you know, damn it, this is America, oh, and yeah. you know, we 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 have we we figured out how to go to the moon. We can put a TV show, show together remotely.
0: I I think yeah, I think we're all going to be very surprised actually, how much we don't need to interact as much. I mean, definitely <laughs> on some things, it's it's inevitable and you have to. But you know, I. As I've said, you know, with working with buyers, or I'm sure working with other people in your department, you can be on the phone. You can, you can, you know, FaceTime. You can, and if you're sharing screens and stuff, even. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but there's
1: there's also certain things that are not ideal. Um, oh no, and, by any means, not ideal. So let's talk about um, kind of a part of what my job is, and it's similar to. It's similar to your job, your profession, is that um, the best. A lot of people would say that the best production designer is uh, is someone where it's not that you don't notice the design; it's that you just notice it enough, and that uh, yeah, that the set is really really cool and it stands out, but right. it's not distracting. Right. Yeah. Now, so my job is very similar, where I have to work with the pacing. I have to work with, uh, you know, figuring out, um, you know, when to cut to the next shot. I have to work on when to bring in the sound bite, When to, you know, especially act out is what we call it, where you know it's the end of the act and it's a big cliffhanger. Sometimes, you know, like you know, uh, where Dorinda is about to like throw a drink at someone's face. Uh, so, uh, uh, so all of these. Um, All of all of these things are important. uh, But when we're trying to craft this together remotely, it's there's something that I've noticed that's happening that's not ideal. And that is that talking to someone on the phone and um, or, you know, even zooming with someone or someone's just kind of watching my cut. There's a weird sort of stress. And it's because I I can't really put my my place exactly. But I believe it has to do with um, having the presence of another human in an edit bay, and us just figuring this whole thing out together. Hmm.
2: Um,
1: this, uh, you know, uh, uh, just like, just like I have to look at, just like you have to look at certain um, very small imperfections within. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, that uh, that flower vase is very pretty, and uh, you know, that I have to really face well, the plant yeah. this way. And all these little things, it's
0: like picking out furniture online, yeah. Going I'm looking at small.
1: Yeah. And I'm looking at small subtleties in someone's face. I'm looking at all these things, but uh, you know, on a on a you know on a screen. But at the same time, I have to read a room full of people. Sometimes I have to I have to get a read on how a producer is taking, you know, this is, is taking a cut and yeah. I, you know that's it, that sort of thing can simply not be done uh, in a in a world of remote working of telepresence of things like that
0: mm. um, now that's an excellent point reaction like like genuine reaction to things we are missing
1: yeah and so we'll uh, and something where th- that's i guess what i'm getting at you know I, i'm not like i'm some kind of a hippie or something like that but it's it's this weird sort of um, human touch that is not present in remote work, and uh, I think that that's first of all something that can definitely contribute a bit to stress. But it's also uh, it's something that uh, it, I think that's possibly why it does seem to take a bit longer to really get the damn thing done. Uh, is because uh, you know I am I I have my own best judgment. This thing that's I would say just like with your profession. it is it's instinctual at this point Uh, like uh avid media composer is literally an extension of my body um you know there's there there's uh there's keyboards that people can buy that of course have all the commands on them and uh and i i almost ask myself why Uh, my uh, my keyboard (laughs) is completely blank and i mean you're it's like jesus you're, you're talking about a software that i've that uh, that I've, I've worked with for um you know for over since 1998 22 years do, do, I mean, right do, for crying out loud do you think do you not does your hand not know what c does
2: at right. this point like, <laughs> yeah,
1: so no it's uh you know I'm, I'm having to really um work fast and efficiently um on this this thing uh it has to it has to be um so instinctual and uh that and that's that's why uh reality editors uh, you know we we don't have a lot of time to put together a hell of a show and uh you know we have to get very good and very fast um and by and by that that's why you know some of the some of the best good and fast editors are also pretty expensive uh you know it so it's, uh, it's it's one of those things where um you know the 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 old adage goes uh you know what's like fast fast cheap, and good pick any two
0: right right. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, so no, I mean, uh, I, and I'm I'm not saying that with any kind of boasting. It's just it's a fact well, that if you're, you are. If you've been around here for a couple of decades, and people still hire you. Then it's you know probably not for your good looks.
0: You but know, it's, you. It, but going off of that, you you know what the what the um, <laughs> you know what the keyboard does. You don't have to look. You get hired. Every you have a reputation for being a good editor. Yet you. Took another path recently to go into yes. VR.
1: <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. So, um, let's. How can I kind of surgically explain this? Uh, so, um, and the other thing I'll say is, strangely enough, a lot of editors I know—not a lot, but I, I could name probably five or ten of them uh who have gone into vr as well and uh you know we've still not necessarily figured out um the, the strange question of why um uh, yes in 20 starting roughly 2015 i would say 2017 is when i went hard into vr and to and by this i mean interactive virtual reality and because uh, there's a couple of different kinds um you know, there's 360 video and stereoscopic 360 video and that's not very interactive and it's that's kind of the, the virtual reality of, of uh, some of the earlier attempts at virtual reality. Uh, in twenty fourteen, there was uh, there were there were a group of Google engineers who I believe were in France, um, and Google lets you dedicate, uh, air quotes, yeah, 20% of your week. So one one whole day a week, which is probably not likely. It's probably more like a few hours a week because, you know, if you're working at Google, you're very busy. I've been there up in Mountain View. Uh, they're, they're, uh, it seems like fun, but they're working on They're cranking. Uh, so you are given one day a week to work on a personal project, and these two Google engineers decided, hey, VR is really stupid expensive, but let's see if we can find a cheap, cool way to do this, and they, they engineered this foldable little cardboard thing and then it's well, some let me
0: ask you something it's it whatever they're working on personally does google own <laughs> no oh, no, oh could, okay no it
1: could uh, yeah i mean you can you can pitch it to them and they could buy it but no, oh. they, no they have been working on their own project in this case google bought it mm. but uh they um at least i think that's how it works gosh i, I mean I, I actually don't quite know the answer to that question but i, I believe you do have some stake in it yeah. at least uh so these, these two engineers uh, they debuted this thing at, at like a huge google event in 2014 and they, uh, they said uh and they're like here's this cool thing uh, we're, we're a couple of engineers from france we decided to make this thing we're presenting it here in mountain view and by the way literally everyone in the room there's one under your seats Yeah, you know, throw your damn phone in there it's so, uh yeah and uh, they're like it uh, costs like like three cents to make these things Yeah, you know, like we could send it to you know developing nations if we wanted to it was pretty cool uh so that's that was one cool cheap big way for vr to kind of hit the masses and kind of like everyone got one i think and then there was there was some upgraded ones uh that was uh, like gear vr for example which was uh, the first thing that was shipped by the company that we it's owned by facebook now that we know as oculus now let's talk about oculus in kind of that same time span um there was a there was a man, a very young man who actually was uh, a teenager. Uh, he was, I think, he was fifteen or sixteen, named Palmer Lucky. And he's just, just this uh, this uh, this girf, goofy nerdy guy from uh, Orange County, and uh, his parents had uh, the means to buy him, like literally every random VR headset uh, you know in existence, including these crappy cardboard things. But uh, you know, no, no, sorry, that was is was a little bit before that. So this is 2013, I think, roughly when he was literally destroying these headsets and then finding the best parts of them I'm kind of you know know, glossy over a lot of things but in large part this is what happened is that you know he, he ripped everything apart he figured out how everything worked and he said, "I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take positional tracking from this one. The, the displays on that one are really good, and the, but these lenses are really cool, and you know, and that's really cool, and the, the 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 sound system on that's really neat. And but you know, this is just a little bit faster on that. And I think if I work with an Nvidia processor on a computer and I have this 12 foot cable, I can do this. And if I have if I use this sort of IR system, then the sensors are going to find me, and uh, and I'm not going to throw up. So it's like he had to figure out how to make a VR headset, and he like." Like literally went to a hotel room, I think in Vegas. And, like strapped, uh, like literally duct taped a couple of them together, and, uh, and then at it, it, it CES uh, in in 2014. January 2014 I think and then he uh he debuted it and uh so many people were so blown away including a man named John John Carmack who actually worked uh, at Id software and he actually created this video game doom he left his job and like became the CTO of the company and then Facebook bought him the next year for two billion dollars so they, they believed in this uh it, it, it was a long-term investment they believed in this uh, this uh this product very early on. Uh, So I, I got bit hard by the bug, 2015, 16, 17, 18. And and then finally 2018, I went back to school, which is humble to do because I was 39 at the time. So I went back to school to um, learn as kind of a full-time student in a place that was called Upload VR. Uh, I uh, I went to a brick and mortar school to figure out how to um, create these interactive, interactive digital experiences. And it was, it, it reminded me a lot of, this is something I had to do, uh, I had to remind myself to, to kind of psych myself up every day to do something that was really hard. It reminded me of navigating this, this sort of unknown world that we were figuring out as we, as we go, the world of Unscripted, because in 2003, when it got into Unscripted, it was still relatively new, so Ryber okay. had only been out for a few years. You know we were still trying to figure out the rules for this now i was in this new world that's not so new now but uh you know vr has only been around some people would disagree with me but vr has not even been around a decade you know we don't know you know uh, where it's going to settle in the next decade but you know it, we're learning more every day with with uh, a lot of people playing nice with software and hardware and uh game engines and all this other stuff now um
0: you're getting in early
1: yeah, getting in early and that's fun. It's it, it's hard, but you know, you own uh, you, know, you you own all of the reward when you when you're putting that much risk into uh, into a new a new industry and a new profession. Now, um how is this similar to editing? Um it's it's very technical. Uh, to create uh, like especially an interactive VR experience. I, I I'm not going to really speak too much about um, 360 video and, uh, and stereoscopic stuff because the, the lack of interaction I, I have a real problem with. There's a couple of game engines out there that are constantly competing. That are uh, one of them is called Unity 3D, and another one is called the Unreal Game Engine.
0: Because what you're what you're really getting into is creating these virtual worlds. Yes. You're you yeah, to, software, to create basically. yeah you're creating in software.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. But mm-hmm. but you know, even though this is going to sound kind of like coy, but you know, I'm still creating in Avid Media Composer. I'm, I'm still creating something out of almost nothing. It's a giant sea of usually very pretty footage, but I have to figure out and navigate the story
0: used in a complex. You're software. editing it. You're editing, yeah, I'm editing the software. Reality. Yeah.
1: But yeah. I'm also not doing you know uh, something that you know something that I will admit that is very very different. Is uh, this is not only not only creating you know uh a 3d world using 3d modeling tools and 3d lights which is something you could do in in things like after effects for example which is uh, more and more editors have to know the adobe system and after effects so you have to know a little bit about lighting and 3d and textures and stuff like that but in this case it's a like these game engines are these very robust pieces that are that are um powered by you know a a very big core of, of software so that you can uh very robustly run um you can create this 3d environment and um the air quotes camera that is in these game engines in this case that is your vr headsets
2: Mm -hmm. so
1: the the camera um is being controlled by someone's head and we have to figure out using a number of tricks we have to figure out where each of these uh you know how how to Give someone a good experience that, first of all, is not going to make them throw up, uh, which is, uh, you know, something that uh, what we call the vestibular system, uh, which is your inner ear. And we have to so we have to learn about the physiology of, uh, of, of a human being. You know, how how are we making sure that someone's head is being tracked successfully? How high does that frame rate have to be, which, you know, in, in television, you're looking at only about 30 frames a second and, t- and in film, it's about 24 frames a second how high does that frame rate have to be before someone's starting to get sick it, it turns out you have to be you know uh, north of 72 it's ideal it's if it's north of 90 frames a second 100 frames a second so that's extremely fast okay well uh, if it's if the frame rate's set high well the resolution has to drop down well how do i combat the lower resolution well i can change this and this uh, how you know how does sound work how you know so it's all these questions that we have to ask of how to convince someone more and more that they're in a virtual environment that they can interact with. Oh my God, how does interaction work? Can someone walk around? How does someone walk around without killing themselves in their up? literal home? Yeah. How do
2: you,
1: how do hands work? How do you track someone's answers? There's lots of ways we do that. There's companies out there now that actually would that, that have these things you strap on and you just, it just tracks your fingers. How does feedback work? How do you tell a human being that, uh, you know, that, when, when their hand is touching a certain item or picking up an item, how does, how do you convince someone that they, they touched that up? Well, that's, you know, you have to use haptic feedback and it has to give, it has to go at a certain time that is corresponding to a sound that you're hearing and, and to, uh, to an image that you're seeing. And that's, The limbic system which is a part of the central nervous system so you have to understand so much about the human body and be a software developer and be a storyteller and understand how it seems like you went into
0: something harder than you already doing
1: (laughs) well it's 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 not worth it unless it's hard (laughs) i mean i'm looking
0: i looked at you know clips on your website and i mean it's crazy of the things that you've just developed a whole world out of nothing <laughs> like it's.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. But it's uh, but it's not really out of nothing. Just like just like with you, it's uh you know this is coming from uh you know, it, it, hopefully a, a team of people that uh, that uh, can get together and get along and figure things out. But uh, a lot of times, uh, uh if it's a smaller team, like especially in the VR world, then I'm having to figure this stuff out on my own. You're having to figure these things out on your own. I have to figure out exactly what you know what is the lighting like what is this room like? yeah you know, i mean uh, what is the architecture is
0: uh, you know if you want it right and you're even the architecture of like how does the door work Does it was it you know swing left or right or i'm sure those are things that you're Figuring out as you're going along and basing oh, yeah. these things. and that's something
1: things. that you know to, to get something off the ground. Um, you know, I would say it does not take very long. But uh, the thing that does take a long time in the video game world in general, and the digital entertainment world in general, uh, and interactive entertainment in general, and uh, but especially in the VR world is uh, the is optimization. Uh, you know, it's so like I can get something limping maybe in a few days. Uh, you know, the the, uh, uh, the core concept of something, for example, or if it's a game, like I could get a primary. Game mechanic. And I could try that out, uh, you know, and, and, and do little test levels of this. And what happens when I just take a stupid rudimentary cube and I just put this together and move this over here? And how do uh, you know how does time work? Can I manipulate time? Ooh, I can. How do you do that? So it's a uh, it, it's, it's figuring out all these things in a kind of a prototype, and then then you're going into production and figuring out how to make it really slick. And mm. uh, unlike. Television and movies, this is storytelling in a lot of different ways. But you're you're giving the user the complete agency over the story. Uh, so um, you might have a really cool, you know, heavily beautifully decorated scary haunted house, but um, you know, uh, only the user can perform the action to actually you know advance that story. Right. Uh, you know it's like if you're if, if the door is in front of someone and they have to they open up the little door and it goes and you just it's like is there a monster on the other side well if, has no, you, someone has to figure that out
0: it's like uh what is that game that ethan and i love from like the late 80s monster mansion or
1: yes yeah well wait what was
0: that <laughs> something Mansion maniac, maniac, maniac mansion, mansion. Uh, yeah it's not it's like an updated version of that
1: <laughs> yeah, no, of course, and then, uh, those whole things like Leisure Suit Larry and uh, the, yeah. the guy who actually the guy who actually created Leisure Suit Larry is uh, is my neighbor. Uh, he, lives, he lives very close to me. His name is Will Binder. What? Uh, uh, it's this interesting thing to see what VR has become and what it will become, uh, you know, in in in, uh, in future uh, iterations of
0: hardware. But look software. at look at how much it could possibly be needed right now. It's, because it's of like actors pos-
1: it's very it's it possibly <laughs> nothing kim uh you know q1 the so the, the quarter one uh facebook um quarter one facebook from uh earnings were posted and uh they they were like here's how much we made off of you know everyone's data who has a facebook account and instagram and all this other stuff here's how much we made and then they're like Here's the non Facebook income for Q1, and it was, which means, you know, Oculus. So, um, Oculus in Q1 of this year made 279 million dollars.
0: Jesus.
1: Um, yeah, and they sold over 100 million in. Um, I, th- I want. I hope I'm saying this right. I believe it was over 100 million in content sales in the month of April, which is of course during the pandemic. Why can't
0: ever? And, I, why can't I get in at something early?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is still very early. I mean this this is a this is a uh, yeah. this is a time where a lot of people, just for their own psychological health, are getting into VR and they're, they're realizing, especially because of the Oculus Quest, which uh, was released last year, uh, they cannot keep they cannot keep those things in stock. I mean, Not I lost money on have,
0: Bitcoin. I'm still out. I'm still out Bitcoin money. <laughs>
1: I know. It, well, that's. It, it, <laughs> Every industry. So a, a lot of these industries are sort of related. I'm late to the podcast the, the
0: game. Other- yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's something that a research firm uh, that's called
1: Accenture, uh, which is based in Ireland. That uh, they, uh, it's uh, these are these companies that uh, that are all related, even though they sound like they're completely different. They are all related. and They're called something they called dark companies. It's, they love acronyms in the tech industry. So, uh, so Accenture, uh, you know, was saying a dark company was one that would uh, it's D A R Q, and it was it's one that uh, that would satisfy. Um, Any of these uh, these these factors and uh, the first one these are kind of a stretch for some of (laughs) these um, For some of these these acronyms, but uh, the D is distributed ledger, which is a very fancy term for um, For uh, Bitcoin uh, for crypto
2: basically Uh,
1: the second one is uh, the a is artificial intelligence and the R is virtual reality Mm -hmm. and uh, the Q is uh, is quantum computing Uh, so these are com- the, the companies that you want to really watch out for are the ones that are kind of at least touching on that where there's at least tendrils or they're going, they, they have a, like a, a complete, um, you know, digital arm that's in any of these industries. And it's because the way that technology is moving, um, okay, I'll give you an example. Uh, so a lot of people know with the Mandalorian that, um, that, they used a virtual production that uh, was using. Uh, it was using a company called Lux, which is based in downtown LA.
0: Right. I watched they, the making of that on Disney. I watched that little thing because we. I knew we were gonna get into that.
1: Oh, definitely. We should definitely show notes of this because because uh, if anyone has not seen this, it, it's it's amazing. Uh, so it's this process where uh, there's uh, a projection screen that the uh, the kind of um covers i mean you could make it any size i suppose but you know it, it covers basically uh, most of a set in the same way that a green screen would work um and you know green screen technology has been around 70 years I, I would wager at this point uh, but it was uh, this is something that's very new where instead of a green screen you are getting in some cases if you need to final pixel um which is you know you are getting the shot um using the these projection screens that are projecting a virtual environment in the background. And um, when people actually see these sets, it looks distorted. It's actually a little nauseating uh, to see it. And people are like, why does that look so funny if it's supposed to be this, uh, you know, it's it's supposed to be this set that we built. It looks weird. It's what my eyes are distorted. I'm getting ill. Why is this happening? Well, it's because that set is actually being photographed by a camera that, you know, is before all these actors and a little bit of set dressing. Yeah. But it's not, it, it's you know it doesn't look right to you because the camera is actually being tracked by one of those aforementioned game engines like Unity 3D or like Unreal game engine from Epic Games and these uh, these engines actually have right off the bat you could start a new project and it says hey you make it a two two D game you make it a 3D game are you making a VR game hey are you making a virtual production really? and you just click right there and it'll instantly set up all these things so you can track where the camera is going. Uh, you could it, it uh it's where you have cables that are sending it to this game engine and you know, you're it's uh you know, the, the environment is, is basically dynamic. You can change all the lighting in the environment. You can change anything instantly. This is something that has sped up production uh by I would say an order of magnitude at least. Uh, because uh and it's also helpful for actors who normally are you know, humans are not very good at, at um even a well trained actor is not good at uh at, at, at Acting in front of a green screen, right? Uh, and uh, you know, using this virtual production, which I was just speaking about to some friends that, uh, down in Texas, who were like, "How can we do this?" I was talking to them the other day about it. And it's uh, and it's something that, especially in this pandemic, if you can only have very limited, let's say, limited crews are coming back, uh, you yeah, know, in the fall or something. Uh, this is this is a, a way that on many shows that you uh, you could figure out a way to create a massive virtual set using these 3d engines and people are like oh but that sounds so sci-fi no no do you want to use, you want to know what used a virtual set i get uh so let me just so you if you just guess a movie from last year uh, like a major one um yeah just name me a movie rocket man uh, absolutely use virtual sets in some cases oh i'm sure yeah because yeah there's a lot of weird slow mo so even that was using it but you want to know one that's going to blow your mind uh okay parasite
0: parasite oh they did the whole skyline or something right
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yes they did yeah. Yeah, yeah now so that was using a virtual production on you know they, were, they just had some uh some big machines that were you know located outside of uh they were basically located uh you know under a like an easy up tent and uh and you had these people who were Having to figure out on the fly, how do we change the sky to do that? How do we do this? How do we do this? How can we, you know, look at this real time and see if the shot's gonna effing work? Well, they even had people on set editing the movie
2: mm-hmm.
1: as uh, as it was being shot. And so it was it was really an astonishing moment of technology. And again, speaking to what we were talking about, about how our professions have to be very good, the, the way that that show uh, the, the, sorry, the way that movie worked with the virtual production is because we didn't know for months until BTS came out, behind the scenes came out about it. We didn't know that these were virtual shots. You mean Mandalorian? No, I mean like anything, but oh, especially but like anything. In, Par- in Parasite. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I think one of the funny things about the behind the scenes of Mandalorian is John Favreau kind of taking credit for, like... He I mean, sort of
1: did. Okay, no, I did give him a lot. I, I love
0: I him. I love him too, and and I think it's I think it's incredible of the movies that he like the movies. You would never think the guy from Swingers is doing like Lion King live action thing, and like yeah, I mean, and,
1: and it's not, but it's not live action. That's no, what everyone calls, exactly. Calls Lion it King, was on li- digital. Yeah, it's but it's completely. You Jungle know, it's like Book not, was live action. Oh, sorry. Say that again.
0: Do you think? But I would say Jungle Book was live action.
1: Yeah, I think Jungle Book, in large part, was. Was that was a mixture of of live production and and CGI, um, but uh, in the case of Lion King, not one of those objects.
0: Right. That's all. it was all live, digital. It's not, there's nothing in, was, it was live.
1: Uh, yeah. Oh, but sorry. Say that again.
0: I, yeah, nothing, and it was live. It was all digital animals and like,
1: exactly. Was, but that's but the, this is just the, the very point that we were trying to make is that it's a bit of magic uh, that occurs where. Um, in virtual production, where it has to be so good that you don't know it exists. So, like, uh, and by that, it's not just John Favreau; it's, it's people like uh, like uh, Irfan Merchant, I believe, was, was also working on *Live* *Lion King* with his uh, with his production uh, production studio in in Burbank. And he actually, I think, he, uh, that he's been so busy, he's actually had to move a couple of times the last couple of years to move into bigger and bigger studios. And uh, so, it's these people who are downright heroic because they're having to figure out for these major studios like Disney, you know, it's, it's no pressure. It's just the, the, the lion King. And it, it yeah. has, it has to work. I think, but it, I,
0: I think too, one of the things that blew me away watching that was that it's not just one big giant, um, like screen or like a green screen. It's just kind of like a piece of fabric type thing that's chroma keyed or whatever. This was yeah. like hundreds of like 60 inch TVs all put together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was and, crazy. Uh, and- and especially in the in the sense of well okay a lot of this was figured out we have to actually give uh, we have to actually give give the credit to uh, the production team that was working uh, with Blade Runner twenty
2: seventeen
1: mm. um, and uh, at Siggraph of uh, twenty seventeen when uh, when that movie came out then it was uh, it was kind of breaking the internet where uh, and his name escapes me unfortunately but uh, it was one of the VFX supervisors supervisors was uh, discussing how uh, they used game engine technology in this case it was um in uh in the case of mandalorian it's the unreal engine in the case of unity 3d it was these filmmakers uh especially with digital monarch because, uh, digital monarch media was owned by uh by unity and uh you know they've been working on a lot of these projects as well so it's these people who are just figuring it out every single day how to create this thing you know, create these virtual environments that don't exist putting on a VR headset like it's and then wearing it on their headsets on their foreheads like it's a little tiara you know, changing something in right. a computer, popping, it popping the HMD down, looking in, the, in a like a virtual set. It's like going to another friggin' dimension. It's insane. Popping the headset up again, changing something now, changing out set dressing, moving Simba around. You know, it's like and it moved, and then uh, you know putting it back on again. It's it's weird. It's like looking into another dimension. Yeah. And then and then having to go back and just make the movie that way. So it's it's having to use all these different technologies, and that's why I thought it was probably a good insight to look into this virtual reality stuff like three years ago, because it has paid off. It has really helped my career. And I do think that if editors have to be big tech technical storytellers, then um, it, it makes perfect sense that we have to go into the latest and greatest digital entertainment, and especially in this case, interactive storytelling. That's, mm-hmm. that's why I think it's really important.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've definitely evolved. You you're evolving with, Technology, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. What if, like, you know, March of twenty eleven? What if I just kind of said, "Well, fuck it." It's uh, you know, it, it, well, I guess all the videotapes gone. I don't know. I'm,
2: right. Uh, right. I'm just, you
1: know, I guess I'll just go home and I'm, I'm not going to do my job because uh, you know because those factories are all fine. It's uh, no, that, that we have to figure things out, and that's why I think that um, being an editor is a very unique thing because. Uh,
0: Jonathan is just a plethora of knowledge. I'm sure you could tell. He he could talk about anything, and that is such a skill. Um, I think him being an editor and now in creating VR worlds is just perfect because he likes the details and finds interest in them. Um, just really interesting dude. I don't know. If, uh, he knows a lot of people. You probably know him.
2: I don't
0: know. Uh, You can check out his work uh, on his website, jonathanfisher.mystrikingly.com. I also have that link in the episode post. So I'm very thankful that he was able to explain editing to me (laughs) and talk about how it relates to production design, uh, the continuity of shows. And um, yeah, see that we are all spokes in the wheel I wanted to thank you for the ratings and reviews that people are leaving. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's really helps me out with this podcast. So, um yeah, thank you. Um and if you haven't, just you know, right now, just clickety click, five stars, cool. Um, I also see that people are checking out the clips that I've been making on YouTube and the Decorating Pages podcast website. So I hope you're enjoying them. I think they're fun. It gives a little visual to what we're saying here. If you ever have any questions or requests of interviews, please let me know. You can always email me at kimwanup at decoratingpagespodcast.com. You can DM me on the social decorating pages on Instagram or Twitter or the Facebook page. La 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 la. I would love to hear from you, though. I hope you got an earful. full. I'm Kim Wanup for Decorating Pages. Summer is half over. Are you floating in style on your Stogie? Stogie Floaty Luxury Pool Float. Available now on Amazon, Etsy, and stogiefloaty.com.